0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... L
1: of Stranger Things as a PC. Nosferatu. Kids games with Michelle
0: Nephew. And Brother 12. I think it's fair to say that our heads are full of ideas for games. Sorry, can't hear you over all these game ideas in my head. If you, cherished Listener, are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games in your head. But unlike award-winning podcast-hosting game designers like us,
1: you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue! The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box.
0: It's got a ton of generic components like meeples, cubes, Dice, tokens,
1: and discs. And it's got a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing, with topics like refining your design, playtesting, crowdfunding, and how to
0: work a convention. In short, The White Box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash box Or follow the link in the show notes. You can get The White Box right now
1: everywhere tabletop
0: games are sold. But Ken, here's the rub. I also can't even hear you over these game ideas.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But... That's not Peter Frampton, that's a glowering Joe Strummer, because that's the double-fold Sandinista album. The miniature is Demogorgon, but it's actually a miniature of a miniature of Demogorgon. We've gone meta, we've gone 80s, it's a Stranger Things Gaming Hut, courtesy of Patreon Becker, Walter Manbeck, who asks... Stranger Things resembles a scenario from a game of Tales from the Loop or Flood. A powered character like Eleven changes what Tales characters are capable of. Would Elle just be an NPC to get the normal kids out of danger? Or is there a way for her to be a PC? Robin. This is sort of a version of the old Doc Savage problem, isn't
0: it? Uh, The Doc Savage problem or the Buffy problem or the Doctor Who problem. So first of all, let's stipulate that uh, we are not going to spoil... Uh, anything in Stranger Things Season 3. True. It itself is not
1: spoiled. Yes. Came pre-spoiled for your enjoyment.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's not giving away, uh, anything to say that she uses her psychic powers again. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they come in useful sometimes and not in other times. So, uh, yeah, this is the idea of, uh, can you have a viable group of player characters where one of them has what on the surface appears to be a uh, a superpower that uh, renders the rest of them less effective. And I think, first of all, let's examine that premise, because even in D&D, there's a certain point where the uh wizard gets fireball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the job of everybody else after... After the, uh, wizard who's been a, a puny little slip of a thing who can, uh, get, uh, uh, his or her ankle a bitten by a centipede and die, all of a sudden they are extremely powerful, but also need protecting all the time. Yes. And so, uh, this is, uh, nothing new. And certainly I think, uh, having, finding a way to do a character like L as a player character is much more interesting than having a non-player character who comes along to uh continually uh rescue them. Yeah, so, that's
1: that's the Elminster problem, which is the worst kind of problem.
0: Yes, especially if it's Elminster. Um
1: mm-hmm. well, L short for Elminster, I think that that's obvious problem. Right,
0: yes. So the, the thing there is is to let's look at does L actually um solve all of the groups' uh, problems and and why doesn't she? And so, uh, uh Ken, uh, why are we not watching Elle solve all the problems in the course of any given season of Stranger Things?
1: Because it's an ensemble show and that would be boring. And also because many of their problems are not the kind of problems that you can psychically smash up or uh clairvoyantly spy on. And in fact, every now and again, uh, using her powers gets her into other kind of trouble or... At the very least presents her with a genuinely life threatening situation of the sort that the general uh, atmosphere of jiggery pokery, uh, certainly in, in season three doesn't, uh, really convey it for the rest of the book characters. So if you were using, for example, Tales from the Loop, it's perfectly simple. Elle has no luck. Elle has very few skills. She has ratings of 10 in force, but only psychically, and ratings of 10 in um, uh, examine or whatever it is, investigate, but only psychically. She can only do those things. She's still part of the dice system, and if she's up against um, uh, a mind flare, like a really big one, then she could still get banged up while the other kids are either trying to keep Elle safe and hidden from the authorities or, uh, investigating the rest of the, of the weirdness in town. So it, it seems pretty balanced. And indeed in the presentation in the show, it is pretty balanced. Everyone's got stuff that they've got to do and Elle would be actively worse than useless at doing more than half of it.
0: Right. And the show has always presented her powers as being limited and rationed. Mm-hmm. In various ways. Uh, first of all, we see that uh, the power takes a toll on her. She can't. Uh, she gets the famous nosebleed. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing that literally or doing something similar, there's a limitation on the number of times that she can uh, use that without... Uh, wiping herself out and making her then someone who is completely helpless and needs, uh, the production from, uh, everybody. So you can, uh, it's as if, Ken, they knew about role playing. <laughs> yeah. Some, what do you suppose there's any evidence within
1: the, within the product itself, within the I show that would indicate What's, that they might have known
0: role playing? Yeah, they might have known it. So, uh, you know, they gave her, uh, her fireball spell a, uh, a, a time limitation of the number of times it can be used or, uh, yeah. you know, obviously it, it uh, causes a, a hit point toll. So right. She can either
1: choose maybe to lose two points off of her ability score so that it weakens the next time she uses it, or she can lose one point off of her body uh, so that she... And she did not begin with a five body. Let's point that out. She's a little snip of a girl, as you pointed out of the wizard earlier.
0: Right. Uh, so that's already in place. And we have another mechanism that's always been in place, which is that those powers gain unwanted attention. Yeah, they and do uh although that's an aspect that is uh sort of slipped away in the second or, sorry in the third season in the first and second season that's the whole point is that they mm-hmm. cause uh weird science people to come after her so that every time uh our L character in your game uh calls attention to herself by using the powers that increases the risk of what in uh, uh would be called an antagonist reaction where some other bad thing happens and the whole point in season uh, two is that she is bounded by her need to, uh, remain a fugitive, to, to remain in hiding. And even in, uh, season three, some of the sort of romantic complications kind of come out of that in, in a way. And so to broaden this out a bit, if you have a game that is predicated on one character having a seemingly super duper, uh, power, you look at ways to reduce the super duperness so that other people will have to do things. So uh, L, uh, you know, as as you suggest, Ken is not someone who can go down to the newspaper office, so you need a character who can go down to the newspaper office. And uh, the other thing that the show does, of course, is split the... Uh, party up until the very, uh, very end. That's not a spoiler, um, unless you're completely unaware. Unless
1: you've never read a comic book.
0: <laughs> Every structural thing ever. And so, uh, it has, uh, people off doing, uh, different missions and then, uh, cutting them together. Were it really a role-playing game, uh, those things might be, uh, spread out over several sessions because there was a couple of sessions maybe where Else Player didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't there. And so there had to be a, you know, there was a, Uh, A whole episode where people were crawling through ducts or or whatever it was on whatever side quest there was. And so uh, it sets up uh, different missions for everybody. They're all doing things. uh, Even the characters with uh, L are helping to protect her. And another mechanical thing then that you could look at is that in order for uh, the character with the power to get to use it again effectively uh, or uh, to radically increase the chance of their being successful, other characters have to succeed at other achievements in the plot. So that uh, whether it's something literal, like you literally have to uh, jump in the way of the uh, uh, laser beam in order to protect the uh fragile but powerful character and or you know you have to find a place for her to rest and that's the uh, achievement that that unlocks more points that you can then spend on uh, a given use of a power but uh, look for ways for uh, other characters to be doing things to allow your ultra character to be stepping in
1: yeah the um as with most things in role playing, even the most normal ones uh having a l or an indie or a doctor who Uh, character means getting buy-in and saying, are you guys cool with playing companions or sidekicks or Scoobies? Um, And is the player that we have selected or who's volunteered to play the sort of uh, superpowered super powered character. Are they going to be able to handle the necessary sort of story, uh, blowback that is going to happen? Because of course it is going to be story blowback nine times out of 10. I suppose you could bring, uh, karma points in from the old Marvel superheroes, which was another great way to equalize unequal characters. But, um, by and large, a karma point is just a way to remind the GM to do story. So, you know, why, why, why involve them at bookkeeping if you don't want to? So Uh, in fact,
0: there are a lot of players who are probably more comfortable playing a supporting role because it means that, uh, if you don't like playing a character who's being hunted and has to be absolutely careful at every turn, if you, uh, are easily stressed out during a game and don't want that, or if you prefer to play the more freewheeling character who goes off on, on the bike to, uh, Look at the uh, at the weird marsh on on the edge of uh, town, uh, warning there is no weird marsh on the edge of town in season three um, mm-hmm. that it uh, both can unfetter or or relieve the pressure on you. There's uh, often someone in the group who prefers to play the sort of healer type who uh, augments other people or the person who gives the um, inspirational speech it does. Um, and so you may actually find it harder to find the ideal person to play the focal point character than to find people who are willing to, uh, be the, uh, the loose cannon and the healer and the, uh, giver of inspiring speeches, uh, in part be- because, you know, you're, you are not the, uh, the brunt of everybody's hopes and, and expectations, or you might not, not want to be the doctor because the doctor is the one who has to be able to, uh, figure everything out at the end. And you may f- find uh, that too much pressure that it's easier to play an ordinary person than it is to play Doc Savage or uh, what have you. Yeah.
1: And um, certainly you can, uh, there's enough of those examples that you can try it. And if you don't like it, then, uh oh no, uh, the, the doctor who has gone crazy or Doc Savage is back in Central America getting gold. And when he comes back, he's going to be slightly different because he's going to be played by a different character. Um, and that's, and that's just fine. I mean, that the whole point of these sort of central iconic characters is that you are collaboratively, telling their story and that the person who's playing that role, that they kind of can't make it about their ego because their job is to sort of service the role in a way as opposed to to just sort of, you know, hair off and chase everything shiny that interests them.
0: Uh, Well, I I think that uh, uh, we then have uh, uh, created the conditions uh, for some heroic figure to come in and I don't know, present an exciting commercial and then lead us. Into the next exciting installment.
1: In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet built aircraft that touched the edge of space and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia.
0: Yeah, but there's more to that story.
1: In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos.
0: A government program named majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural a government program named delta green tries to destroy the unnatural in the fall
1: of delta green you play the agents of delta green caught between your oath to america and your duty to humanity caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions
0: written by kenneth height the fall of delta green adapts arc dream publishing's delta green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine The Fall of Delta Green is a
1: standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall
1: of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The sound of the orchestra down in the pit, the uh, smell of silver nitrate in the air, tell us that we are uh, not only in the cinema hut, but in a very old-timey version of it indeed, because uh, we are going to look at uh, F.W. Murnau's uh, 1922 uh, classic silent vampire flick, Nosferatu, because, Ken, uh, you were part of a panel uh, at DragonCon recently uh, where uh, the uh, presentation of the film with, I. uh live music if i understand correctly yeah
1: it was at uh dragon con there was a panel featuring myself daker stoker bill mulligan um who's a film blogger i think film podcaster thomas mariani another uh film podcaster and the music of valentine wolf uh which is a uh two person uh orchestra basically uh a player of the bass the electronic bass and a vocalist, a beautiful, uh, a sort of a haunting, gothic, creepy, uh, sound achieved by her vocals and his bass. And, uh, it, uh, it, you know, it was not something that they had composed so much as it was sort of a jazz riff on Nosferatu because they had certain themes that they wanted to hit as they, as the movie came up. but they were sort of responding in real time to the, to the, to the thing on screen. So it was very much like it might have been at a very weird theater in 1926 if you were watching it somewhere. Although you couldn't have watched it in 1926 because the film was a failure and no one watched it then. <laughs>
0: right. A, a hot tip uh, for anyone watching it on streaming, uh, the music that always accompanies silent films in uh, the age of video is universally terrible and uh, rinky-dink and awful. And so uh, put on a uh a sort of a, a contemporary ambient music or creepy soundtrack you can find all sorts of playlists on Spotify uh, you probably have one yourself if you run horror games and uh, listen to that instead yes you may even be able to find uh, music by Valentine Wolf yes if you can't if you can't have cool live music um always avoid the music that's uh, uh comes with the streaming version so this uh film famously uh took some liberties with the then in copyright uh novel of Dracula yes.
1: and uh in a desperate attempt to avoid legal action?
0: Yes. But even <laughs> before that happened in the filming of it, it uh is a much different version of the novel in what it chooses to uh spend time on and uh what it doesn't bother with. So it's quite different than the tradition that comes out of the Dracula stage play, which then yeah. informs Uh, the Bela Lugosi version by Todd Browning and uh, then everything that came after it. So it's sort of off on its own little archipelago of uh, influence over there. Um, So Ken, what uh, uh, sort of insights did you want to bring to the table as you were uh, headed to the panel?
1: I mean, part of it was just i mean, most of the people there were familiar with Nosferatu. It was not a, hey kids, here's this crazy Dracula movie. It was, let's tell you about your favorite movie. In one case, it was one woman's favorite movie and she was very excited. And, uh, I think what I brought was, uh, sort of the parts of the, of the backdrop, the political uh, si- uh, situation in Germany. People didn't know necessarily, um, uh, about people's politics. One person was very concerned that the film was anti-Semitic, uh, which, is kind of a fraught question because the screenwriter of it, Henrik Galeen, was Jewish and very much anti-Nazi. But on the other hand, um, he wrote it in an atmosphere, a cultural atmosphere that was itself redolent with anti-Semitism. And you can't look at Orlok's face and makeup without saying someone was not caring if they were particularly anti-Semitic. And yes. then uh Julia Stryker famously, Hitler's propagandist, Julia Stryker famously watched the movie a bunch of times in the theater and was inspired by it to create uh The Eternal Jew and other works of explicitly anti-Semitic propaganda. So the movie itself is not an anti-Semitic movie. It draws heavily on many tropes that were used specifically the portrayal of Jews as rats, previously to it in in Germany. And, of course, it did have a very powerful aesthetic effect on the look of Nazi propaganda afterward, because, hey, it's an incredibly powerful look that Albin Grau created for uh, Orlok.
0: So, first of all, in uh, the novel Dracula itself, the idea that invading foreigners are uh, coming to take your women and being a a terrible threat to you and bringing uh, death and... And, and horror to to your shores is uh that's in the novel. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's that's not it's not subtext, that's text. That's, that's text. Central to it. Um but it's definitely the case that Nosferatu does uh play in waters that uh would later uh be used to justify killing a lot of people. In particular the uh structure of it uh is uh sort of much more than the, the novel uh, kind of first of all a uh, a sort of a fairy story of someone who goes into fairyland and brings a horror out. So um, it spends a lot more time with Harker, uh, first of all, in, uh, in this case, Hamburg rather than uh, London. Secondly, it's Visborg. It's a fictional city. I, I The version I watched had actually translated the title so that it... Uh, it actually uses the word dracula and, and Harker and so forth um and so i guess it changed uh, that. oh no it it's bremen it, it was claiming it was bremen anyway the town the german town the german uh, town so it's been which a was lot, which but, was
1: filmed i think in in lubeck and uh vismar uh originally
0: when right. uh murnau made it so it spends uh, a surprising amount of its rather slim running time establishing the normalcy of the environment there and then uh, there's a lot of Renfield in this and Renfield shows up in the first act and something's, uh, amiss with him, but Harker doesn't notice it because in this version, Harker is much more of sort of a, uh, a naive dope who, uh, <laughs> brings about the, the, uh, the fall of horror upon his family and his town. And then, uh, there's the bit where he goes to Transylvania and that kind of covers the third act. The entire second act is all about, uh, Dracula arriving. The, the, the Demeter, uh, coming to, uh, London or in this case, uh, uh, Bremen or whatever it is, um, is normally is a, is a quite short little bit of sort of connective tissue in the story. And in this one, it's the entire second act of this, uh, uh, and basically a horrible force slowly and inexorably descending. And the narrative sort of loses its, uh, conventional bearings in that there's no clear protagonist. There's just. Uh, there's a, a, a hurricane of disease coming to your shore. And then uh, the final bit is a much uh, truncated version of the encounter with uh, Mina and then the, the final uh, defeat of uh, uh, Orlock or, or Dracula. So that the idea of plague, of this uh, uh, invading immigrant figure also being a plague, a, a bringer of disease, is absolutely uh, something that is... Always used to justify uh, uh, xenophobia and and genocide, and indeed, about uh, ten to fifteen years after the uh, release of this film, indeed uh, was uh, used was to-
1: specifically so used. Yes, yeah. The um uh, the other major departure that it takes from the novel is that uh, Orlok, unlike Dracula, uh, can be killed by sunlight. And this is the first vampire to ever be killed by sunlight in um, uh, history. So everyone uh, thank uh, F.W. Murnau, or rather, Henrik Galeen for this. And uh, the way that he is lured into the sunlight, according to the Book of Vampires, which serves the sort of metaphysical, uh, the same narrative purpose as the crucifix that the nervous uh innkeeper hands to Harker in the novel. In the movie, the nervous innkeeper hands Hutter uh a copy of the Book of Vampires, which Hutter refuses to pack. You see him flinging it down, but then some helpful hand has stuffed it back in his bag. So um uh, he winds up bringing it all the way back where Ellen, which is the Mina character in the movie, uh reads it. And discovers that, uh, the only way to stop a vampire is to, to stop the Nosferatu is for a, a a pure uh, maiden to, uh, allow him to, uh, feed on her such that he is distracted from the crowing of the cock and killed by the, by the sunlight when it comes into her room. And since Ellen is a married woman, not a pure, it's not about virginal, uh, status. It's about moral status. And so she has to be self-sacrificing. So it has to be someone who's doing it on purpose and knows that they are going to die to save the town. So you can't just say, hey, uh, attractive neighbor, why don't you stay up here in your nightgown for no reason and do that to them? That that doesn't work. You have to uh, be pure of heart to um, uh, stop Orlock, And all of that is very much Buried in the subtext of the novel. I mean, you, you know that Dracula doesn't particularly like the sunlight. He generally wants to sleep through it, but that's, that, that means he's me. That doesn't mean he's, um, uh, <laughs> a monster. And, um, uh, Mina is very explicitly cast as, uh, the uh, figure of, of female virtue, uh, not least by having Lucy, her sort of, um, uh, party friend as a, as a foil. Um, but, she is not ever called upon to sacrifice herself uh, in fact dracula takes that sacrifice from her in an act of rape that um uh, the movie weirdly sort of sublimates because of course ellen knows what she's getting into when she offers herself to orlok so it's a so it's a it's a more fraught sexual movie than than the novel is and the novel's plenty fraught as it is and the mean the mina character is both more active and more passive uh, in the movie than she is in the novel. So there's yes. a lot of weird changes just in personality. And in, in addition to Harker or Hutter, as he is in the movie, uh being a dupe, which in fairness is how most filmed versions make him even though he isn't. Yes,
0: that's, that's sort of an e- uh, another easy pattern to, to fall back on. and It's, it's mm-hmm. uh, not surprising that that's been done again and again. As you suggest, the Mina character uh, both has uh, more agency. She chooses to destroy Orlock. But also that falls back on the, uh, good old, uh, trope of the, uh, and good old and, uh, ironic quotes of uh, the self-sacrificing woman who, uh, saves everybody by destroying herself. And so the, the sexual politics of that obviously are not uh, something that you're going to see, uh, in a lot of movies today. And, and also the interesting thing about that is Orlok just ain't that great at being a vampire compared to Dracula that this seems like missing the sunlight, getting distracted. Uh, obviously, I guess there's the idea is There's some sort of supernatural compulsion in there. But, uh, in the end, his, uh, his threat, uh, is fairly, uh, readily dealt with, uh, within the confines of, of the runtime. And, uh, he's, uh, a sort of a, a sickly and horrifying and repulsive figure, uh, but often sometimes a ludicrous one as well as when it shows him, uh, you know, carrying his coffin across the yard to his house. In a uh sort of almost sort of a comical scene that also kind of brings into question the whole idea of the sunlight uh, burning vampires because uh that seems to be a daylight scene but uh what are you gonna do it's It's hard to tell in nineteen twenty two what's day for night
1: <laughs> Some of the uh, versions you'll see have been tinted to indicate these must be night shots these must be day shots um that obviously wasn't the case uh in the originals, but there you go uh I think that you can basically. Uh, imply maybe if you wanted to that in fact sunlight doesn't kill him it's the combination of sunlight and feeding on pure blood that kills him that it's the purity is another core part of, of what kills him not just sunlight but sunlight does in fact kill him at the end we see him turn into smoke and the, and the rest of it the other thing that I made sure to mention, because it is my brand, is that Alban Grau, the person who sort of came up with the idea of making a vampire movie and did the scenic uh, the production design, did the costumes, did the sets, uh, was, as it happened, a legitimate uh, black magician. He was a follower of Crowley. He was part of the or- Ordo Templi Orientatus. Uh, his name was Master Packetius. He's the reason that when uh, you see Nock, the Renfield slash Hawkins character, uh, reading Orlok's letter, it's written in sort of weird Enochian sigils, is because uh, Grau did that. Uh, all of the other sort of occult elements of the film are intentionally in there. Uh, Grau, uh, no doubt, he had lots of things that people haven't noticed yet. Um, he eventually d- broke with Crowley and joined a new group, the uh, Fraternitas Saturnii, with a guy named Eugen Grosha. And then wound up uh, getting out of Nazi Germany after the Fraternitas Saturnii got shut down by the Nazis, and he wound up in Switzerland. So that was our man, uh, Alban Grau. And I figured, hey, legitimate black magic vampire horror, maybe point that out. Also, one of the castles, the castle that they filmed um, Nosferatu in, which I did not mention in the panel because we only had so much time. Uh, was a castle that, uh, um, may or may not have been owned by Elizabeth Bathory. Um, that she might have been, uh, at the very least an owner of it, if not, um, ever lived there. And that also, uh, it might very, very briefly have been a place that young Vlad the Impaler was stashed by Matthias Corvinus, who owned it back in the 15th century. So you've got all manner of fun stuff going on with Orava Castle, which is the castle that uh they use for Orlocks Castle and it has its own possible vampire history. Um so it's great fun. Uh
0: before we get in our our fast moving carriage to head to the next uh, segment a few more notes just on the adaptation that it uh leaves in some characters but gives them nothing to do. Uh <laughs> yeah. so so uh Lucy and her husband are there uh, and serve no purpose and Van Helsing is there uh and serves next to no purpose. Uh, he's yes. there to be wearing a skull cap to, uh, have a sympathetic character who's also coded as, as Jewish. Uh, but he does some science demonstrations and, um, he's sort of hanging around at the end as if he would be doing something useful, but he's just there sort of a Horatio figure. Yeah.
1: He's, uh, he is in fact the distraction that Ellen uses to get her husband out of the room so that she can, uh, surrender herself to Orlok. And she says, go, go get, oh, what's his stupid name? Bulwer. His name is Bulwer after Bulwer Lytton the uh, occult author um and uh Bulwer is described earlier as a Paracelsian so he's he does alchemical magic but even his alchemical magic is as useless as Bulwer himself
0: and uh this is also the first example of a film that really really makes a meal of Renfield mm-hmm. who in the novel is uh is definitely there but he's a sort of a factotum figure but here uh, the, uh, descent into madness of, uh, Renfield is, uh, seen as the, uh, a source of, or a reflection of disorder in the world. So there's a lengthy chase sequence where he gets out of the asylum for a while and people throw rocks at him and then, you know, he's thrown back in. So there's no effect of that except to be sort of a, a parallel foil to, uh, to Dracula, uh, or Orla. Uh, but the theatrical, opportunities of someone getting to run around and froth uh, at the mouth uh, have certainly, over the years in cinema, been uh, uh, well exploited, uh, much more than the, the novel requires of Renfield.
1: We did learn one really cool thing. From uh, Dacre Stoker, I say we all know, but just for people, Florence Stoker, the widow of Bram Stoker, sued uh Prana Film, which was the company that made uh, Nosferatu for copyright infringement, and she won a substantial award, and Prana Film at that point had uh, sort of gotten to the edge of its Ponzi scheme, and uh, because of opposition from UFA and other uh German film companies, it was what didn't get good distribution in Germany, so it didn't make a lot of money. So uh, Prana Film said, we got no money, so the court ordered them to destroy all the prints of the film, and famously, copies survived, including being played in America in 1929 and in 1930. But the reason, I mean, we, we like to believe that there's this sort of romantic legend of one copy surviving in Argentina, but in fact, a bunch of copies survived because – you know, Prana Film destroyed all the ones in Germany, but it didn't destroy, for example, the ones in Austria or, and it couldn't even get to the ones in America, which weren't even under the Bern Convention. So it started being shown in Germany again in uh, the 1930s and the German lawyer uh, wrote to Florence Stoker and said, Hey, they're showing this film in Germany. Uh, or should I go after them and get it, you know, seized and burned? And Florence Stoker's like, I just got paid 40 grand by universal. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not paying any money to to have more films burned. That's not my scene. So she turns it over to the British uh, society of authors and the British society of authors says, well, she's already sold the world rights to universal. So if anyone's going to pay you to destroy Nosferatu, it's going to be universal. We're not going to pay you. And so the German lawyer who was just slavering to get another fat case uh, was left hanging. So that's why all those copies survived is because, uh, no one wanted to pay for the second round of burning them.
0: Yes. And, uh, <laughs> uh the, uh, the, the true thing is that, uh, you know, even, even copyright lawyers, if they're distracted enough while the cock crows, uh, will occasionally, uh, fly off. And it's time for us to fly off, uh, through this exciting commercial message to see what lurks on the other side. The Best of Asphegel is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled
1: F-E-N-I-X.
0: western how do you say slap leather varmint in swedish Uh, oddly google translate refuses to help on that that's the best of astfagel on drive-thru no need to get psychic nosebleeds while saving this podcast merely join forces with such plucky bike riding patreon backers as grady from new mexico lee candelino james candelino dirk the dice
1: and michael manival Welcome once more to Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else, and once more we are rocketed back in time and space to Indianapolis, Indiana on the day before Gen Con, where Ken and Robin are talking with Michelle Nephew, a publisher, a scholar, and uh, most relevantly, perhaps, or at least partially relevantly, this parent... That's to like children, that is because it. we're talking about children's games, right. one right. of which...
0: And, and co-owner of Atlas Games.
1: Co-owner yes. of Atlas Games, yes. yeah,
2: that too.
1: I was trying to leave the co out because who needs John here? Nobody. <laughs> exactly, none of us right. do. Um, is he here? No, he isn't. No. Oh. Forget him. Uh Because Magical Kitties...
2: That's right, Magical Kitties saved the
1: day. Saved the day. Uh, beloved sponsor of this very podcast. Yes. Uh, I'm sure people can recite the ad by now. <laughs> uh, and this was something that you... Uh, brought into existence because you thought, I have kids, my I have kids, games.
2: Because my kids won't leave me alone about it, actually. Right. They, they begged me for it. Every time we get in the car, Is it was going to be a long ride. Can we play Magical Kitties? It's, it's crazy. They love it. So I got them into role-playing, but there it wasn't d It was Magical Kitties that did it for them.
0: So, how did they discover that Magical the Kitties was a thing to constantly demand from you?
1: Because many parents just don't tell their children these
0: things.
2: <laughs> you don't know ice cream exists, right, that kind yeah. of thing, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we were at kind of the North, we've been, that's our uh, convention up in the Twin Cities, and um, and we sat in on a game, uh, by Matthew Hansen, who was running this game, and lo and behold, he actually turns out to be the designer. And after about two years of not connecting this, I finally realized that's what's happening, and that he has self-published it um, as Sneak Attack Press. And so uh, we talked with him and uh, and and set up a, a publishing deal for it. But uh, this was after, at that point, then it was like three years of of my kids running a campaign of magical kitties with wings and laser beams and and teleporting kitties all over the place. So yeah.
1: Uh, so, had you tried other RPGs with your kids, uh, No Thank You Evil, or any of the other kids' games? Or was this, they fell in love with the Magical Kitties, they weren't going to hear anything about any other stupid attempt to distract yeah. them from magical Well, I
2: wasn't about... I mean, I, I I edited Penumbra, so D20 is in my brain forever, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, I was not about to start that with my kids. It's just right. too rules heavy, and that subject matter is not appropriate for five-year-olds. <laughs> um, so I did try No Thank You Evil thinking, you know, kind of a lighter version, and we ran into difficulties with that right away. I... Um, I had difficulty with the uh, character generation taking way too long. They got super bored and all wandered off. And it just wasn't letting them play what they wanted to play. Weirdly, they, the, the the idea of, of um, going along with D&D where you've got your races and, and, and roles in your party was not something they were interested in doing at all. They just wanted to draw a picture of their character and then play that character. Right. So.
1: And that's, uh, and magical kitties, at least you know what you are. You're a magical kitty.
2: Yeah. No, exactly. No
1: character creation needed.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's very freeform. You're, you're allowed to, to tweak those abilities and stuff pretty darn hard if you want to, to make it suit whatever the kid wants to do. So it, it works out really, really well. It's so simple. It's three stats. You've got, uh, uh, cunning, fierce, and cute. And right. that pretty much works for everything. That's social skills and body and mind. And mm-hmm. you know, and you go from there.
0: Right. So you've, uh, however, for many years, you've always been on, on the lookout uh, at Gen Con for things uh, to play with kids and become uh, quite an expert on games for kids that other people publish. Mm-hmm. And so what is it, before we start to go through examples of mm-hmm. things that you would recommend that... Uh, you look for when you're looking for a kids game. And presumably that has changed over time as you're... I hear that kids change if you feed them and they get older. They do.
2: You know, we started out with uh, Candyland, which is my arch nemesis, officially. Candyland is... I have thrown that copy of that game away out of my house. Uh, It worked when they were about three and they needed to learn how to take turns and how to move a piece on a board. Uh, And then they started making their own games because, you know, they're my kids. And so... We want to make a game. And what do they do? They they set up a board with a track on it, and they start moving pawns. I'm like, no, don't do that. That is not how you make a game, you guys. The so, original
0: Candyland was for polio
2: kids. Yes. Yeah, so you don't I, need
0: Candyland.
2: So I, like, mentally damaged my own children by introducing them to Candyland, I guess. Um, so so I very quickly decided that was not what I wanted for my kids. And and luckily, I go to Gen Con every year. So uh, there is a, a great area in the exhibit hall that's for uh, kids' games in particular. And so I... I have been wondering that for quite a while. But you know what? I found that... The ones that we actually enjoy the most are actually oftentimes not kids' games. They're oftentimes adult games. They're my favorite games that the kids enjoy playing, too, and that are not brain-numbing for me. So the one I like playing with them the most is probably Tsuro, actually, which I think WizKids has got right now. Yeah. Um, and, oh, my gosh, great, great game. It's, it's very abstract, very beautiful, beautiful packaging, and super easy for the kids to pick up. But another one would be, like, um, Sushi Go is one of their favorites. Sushi Go, again, notice that... That there's not a lot of text on here right because one of my kids is is um we started gaming really when he was about five and he's almost seven now but he's not a big reader and so um sushi go is great because they can recognize the pictures and and figure out the math in their head they're excellent at math you don't think about it but kids actually are really great at uh memorizing rules because mm-hmm. they have to because they can't read they are much better memory than I have uh, and and they can do all kinds of math you, you, don't, you don't think they, they can but they, they can in, in their heads even well kids um, have a really
0: good memory for injustice uh, and and decisions that they would like to protest later so yes, they so they're making sure, sure I'm adding
2: it correctly yeah, is what yeah, you're yeah. saying yeah. yes yes. So, so those are a couple of mine um I played pandemic with my kids. That was fun. Yeah, that's
1: Yeah, that's all right. Why
2: not? <laughs> We're saving the world, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, from what? Ah, never mind. Yeah. Uh um, But
1: wash your hands. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's educational. Right. Seriously, yes. Um, I'm not
1: saying you can get a from not washing your hands, but <laughs> you should still wash your hands. Mhm. You saw what happened to Europe. <laughs>
2: So I've got one kiddo, my little guy, he is he is into dinosaurs too. So for years I have is. been I've been looking for dinosaur games. So I have a long list of, of dino games that I have as well. Um, and uh top among those has always been uh draw for dig for dinos by Blue Orange, which is Mainly, you uh, flip over cards to to show that you've dug them up, and then uh, they show the little bits of a skeleton dinosaur, and you get to put them together like a puzzle, and that makes them super happy. Just putting together dino puzzles. So, so the things that I'm looking for mainly for my kids are um, so low low word content, low reading, mm-hmm. um, and cooperative. Um, I find that especially with the littler kids, they have trouble. Uh, Dealing with uh, losing first of all, right. especially if it's his older sisters who are eating yeah. the tar out of him over and over and over again because he's three years younger than his sisters. and also just getting my kids to work together on anything is a bonus. and so that's that's teaching them too I think you know it is educational to learn how to work together so so if I'm
1: understanding you right, uh, if it's low word count mm-hmm. uh, it's cooperative mm-hmm. and beautifully produced, it's good for children and Europeans.
2: <laughs> Good point yes in fact right.
1: So what else have you um, is, is your first goal when you're thinking about okay, let's get another game for the kids is mm-hmm. your first goal to find a game that is uh, uh, adult targeted or whatever you mm-hmm. want to say and think, can my kids play this mm-hmm. Or is your first goal to find a kid targeted game and say, and I stand this.
2: <laughs> I think I think you're you're going at them both from different ends of the state. It's like a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think both are valid, in fact. I've done both many, many times. Um so so either way is, is, is a good approach.
1: Is there some quality uh, for role playing games with kids that is better than other role playing game qualities that might be good? Um,
0: uh, I mean, other and, than, uh, laser cats, than, cats, rather rather than laser cat's Lasercats. Yes. already. well, that is
2: obviously the best one. But um, we have tried things like My Little Pony RPG and things like that, and they enjoy those. Um, the problems I get is Con of the North up in the Twin Cities has a really good kids track, uh, and they have very clear markings as to what's appropriate for younger kids or not. But um, the issue I have is coming into an RPG at a convention and it just not being appropriate content. Luckily, I, carry, I bring along cousins of my children to this convention, and so we pretty much take over every game that we sit down at. So when you've got five, six kids sitting down at your table, suddenly your, your plot changes a little bit. So that helps to, uh, to overwhelm the GM with numbers sometimes. But, That's
0: right. That'll, that'll tame that Warhammer GM. <laughs> um, and so what uh, sort of opportunities do you find the kids looking for in a role-playing game that you would advise someone else who you know? Laser cats are taken, but they mm-hmm. want to make a role-playing game for kids. What sort of uh, uh, situations uh, do you, do you find engage uh, your kids and mm-hmm. your cousins?
2: Well, the age ranges that, that I'm uh, working with right now, which is uh, about seven to ten, um, they don't necessarily need to fight. And I'm, I'm my girls are are both almost ten years old, um, and so they they don't automatically go to the let's kill stuff kill things and take their stuff uh mentality which like my my 12-year-old nephew totally he <laughs> this weekend i was visiting them and he he GM magical kitties Uh, and for the first time, he'd never GM before. And so he GM Magical Kitties. And so immediately he starts overlaying dice roll rules on top of the very basic things where he did zombie apocalypse magical kitties. And he (laughs) threw zombie cats at my, at my daughters and then overlaid like extra combat rules because it's so combat light. Like James, they don't need to fight all the zombies. They could just, you know, Catherine, your sister has wings. She can fly over the zombies. Oh, I didn't think of that. Um, so I think that, that, um, too much emphasis on combat is something that, you know, you don't have to even have any combat in a role playing game, but it's hard for adults to, to get out of that, that track oftentimes and let the kids play the way they want to if it does not involve that. And even I would
0: imagine just heavy conflict is not necessarily the thing. That that's true. Something that's just an objective mm-hmm. and, uh, the, Uh, basis of all strong suspenseful narrative Mm -hmm. is that there's difficult obstacles for the characters to overcome but kids don't necessarily want to overcome difficult obstacles. I once made
2: my daughter cry. Because her kitties were in in a fairy book land, and and there was a little mouse, and she was crying because her husband mouse had died, and and they had and was asking her to go get a magical resurrection potion from the witch to go resurrect the little the little daddy mouse who had died, and my daughter's crying because the daddy mouse is dead, mommy. I'm like, okay, so I work so hard to have no comment, and then. Content like that is enough yeah. to break her down in tears. Let me just so,
0: confront you with the reality of death. Yeah, of a parent's death. <laughs>
2: yes, not yes, just some was, random mouse. It was perhaps a bad move on <laughs> my part, but yeah. but on the other
1: hand, John probably was very attentive and obedient for a while.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, combat obviously we've now learned comes to children between ten and twelve. Wow, that, that's the moment at which they discover murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and is there? A quality then that is a positive quality that happens in the, in the younger than 10 games that you wouldn't think about. I mean, Robin is saying, you know, you don't want serious obstacles. Is it just sort of fun tourism or is there a, another activity that they twig on that us, uh, 12 year olds are past or have forgotten?
2: Hmm. Well, first of all, I would say it's not that they suddenly discover combat when they're twelve because my five year old is is he GM'd. He jammed uh, Dino World for us, uh, in which all the kitties were transported into a dinosaur world, wherein the dinosaurs won every encounter, <coughs> and they would not talk to us and would not let us use cunning to get around these things. We had to we had to fight every single one of them, and the dinosaurs always won.
1: So Maybe so, a Y chromosome thing. I,
2: I'm not going to say that.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but your experimental data indicates that there's my a low sample, sample size. Sample a pool
2: sample pool of five size. is yeah. Yes, He's Correlation, hearing dance.
0: disturbingly close yeah.
1: expectations. <laughs>
0: um, so, uh, when you're looking for kids' games, whether it's a role-playing game or uh, a card game or a board game, mm-hmm. uh, other than Don't Be Candyland, mm-hmm. what do you lo- what do you notice as the things that strike you as uh, deal breakers for you when you're searching for games? Deal
2: breakers, um, making the adult do all the math. I've hit that a lot. Actually, they, they've they got some kind of games where you can't tell if you're winning until the very end and you're adding up your, your points at the end. It really does not work for the small kids because then it's just, oh, you won. I mean, you might as well have, have rolled a six-sider to decide who won that because they can't in their head figure it out. They can't follow it. Yes, exactly.
0: I would argue that any game for anybody of any age where you well, can't tell who's yeah. winning until but the end is...
2: Yeah, it, it, adults have a better way of, of tracking that somehow mentally, and the kids just don't pay attention. To the. If you put the numbers there for them, they'll add them up, but they I don't mean, do your it. Europeans are just being on.
1: told that someone else won and just going on with their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's something they've been brought up to know.
2: Yeah. Um, so so that's the biggest thing, I guess. Um, just being boring. I mean, one of the things I look for in kids' games is the same thing I do in adult games. When I'm wandering the exhibit hall at Gen Con, I look for the ones that look different, that look interesting, that are something that's grabbing my attention that's different about the materials or the or the. Um, the, the gameplay in some way that's visible from a distance. Um, so kids like shiny, sparkly things, like do, adults do.
1: Do you think that a, a, an explicitly educational aim is good, bad, or indifferent in a game? Because obviously the dinosaur game, if you're flipping over things, mm-hmm. I assume he's, uh, or something, an ankylosaur is a different dinosaur mm-hmm. from a dimetrodon, which is mm-hmm. not even a dinosaur, I know. And.
2: I always just, so, Jack would tell so, you. That. I know he
1: would. I was, I was eight once. And mm-hmm. so. He's picking up dinosaur facts, mm-hmm. maybe, but if he's a proper rater, he already knew all those dinosaur facts. Mm-hmm. Do you think that a game that is aimed at educating is trying to do two things, or is it possible for a game to be educational and good?
2: I would argue that every game is educational. Right. In some way or another. Right. I mean, you can... Just
1: teaches you about the perfidy yes. of your sister, if it, nothing else.
2: <laughs> And you know, well, like I said, math uh, cooperation, uh, taking even only even Candyland <laughs> teaches you how to take turns. Um, but something more heavy than that. I mean, Jonathan Tweet did Clades, for example. Right. We played mm-hmm. that. It, it didn't stick with my kids as much as I had hoped it would. But but I always always try. Mm-hmm. If it's obviously educational, it it tweaks my I'm being a good mommy feelings. <laughs> right. So I, I'll definitely try that. But but not absolutely necessary.
0: Well, uh, we thank you very much for stopping by to uh, clue us into something that is, uh, as two childless people uh, we needed to outside <laughs> consultation on. So thanks so much, Michelle, yep. for swinging
2: by. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.
0: Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow. Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing in a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage.
1: Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated king in yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com.
0: The clacking of chronotons and the wearing of time gears let us know that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes yes, even mutilate it. And uh, sometimes our hero uh, goes and sees alternate timelines uh, that uh, exist for a while and then things snap back uh, perhaps uh, with his intervention. And in this case a beloved uh, backer, Mike Marlowe, uh, asks, how does England change if the gunpowder plot goes off? A pun may or may not be intended. And so this is a pretty epical event in history. But for uh, uh, those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, this is the 1605 assassination attempt against uh, King James the Uh This was uh, a plot uh, headed forget by... What,
1: I forget what day it, it happened on, though. That was that was a bit. I did a bit
0: there. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Of course, of course, you forget what day happened on. Right. Uh, the plot was spearheaded by one uh, Robert Catesby, uh, but someone else, Guy Fox, gets all the cool masks out of it. So, uh, aside from uh, the uh, you know uh, V for Vigilante having to have a, a different set of uh, iconic imagery, uh, can what uh, what does history look like uh, when someone? Uh Who I assume is not you, some other uh, uh antagonistic force in the time stream, I assume is the one that created this alternate reality for a while
1: It must have been must have been, or maybe it was always there, and I'm the one that fixed it. who can say but uh the theory, and I think it's a strong uh word to say that it was a theory that Robert Catesby had, but Robert Catesby's theory was that uh the bomb. Would go off, it would kill the whole House of Lords, it would kill, uh, King James, the, 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 country would rise, Catholic country would rise, uh, they would go kidnap Princess Elizabeth, marry her to a Catholic noble, uh, one imagines that, uh, Catesby maybe had someone in mind for that, and that they would, uh, then declare a Catholic uh, monarchy and take care of all this Protestant nonsense. That would not have happened, uh, in 1605, uh, no matter what people like to say about the, you know, old religion, it was definitely in the minority and nobody, nobody wanted to go back to the good old days of Bloody Mary where you're burning recusants and, and running around and having all manner of, of, of problems. Uh, that was bad for taxes. It was bad for England. Uh, you can't be doing that. So. Uh, what actually would have happened and what actually did happen when, uh, the bomb went off and obliterated everyone is that young Prince Charles, who was the heir, uh, was raised in fact by fanatical Protestants who, uh, stamped out Catholicism in a orgy of, uh, of, uh, of ethnic cleansing. If you can call it that to cleanse a sect, sectarian cleansing and, uh, turned England into a centralized autocratic monarchy along the lines of Prussia because uh, you can't be allowing secret Catholicism to fester anywhere, which means you have to be in everybody's business all the time and create a European continental European style police state in uh, Britain. Uh, and that is what happens. And uh, there is a, a, a long simmering discontent, obviously in Ireland, um, which becomes if anything even worse in our in this version of history than it is in ours as the uh, uh patriotic goal of uh of murdering catholics is every so often exported to ireland where it can uh, be done with a proper uh, patriotic pomp but without uh damaging the tax base at home um and there is a uh a, a basically an extirpation of uh the general liberties of the people of england not just to worship but to gather uh, peaceably or to, uh, write things such as maybe it would be a good idea if someone blew up this king and his ministers. Uh, they can't be having people write things. So you have clamping down on the free press. Ergo, uh, the, uh, tradition of individual rights never comes up. Locke never emphasizes Montesquieu's, uh, uh discoveries. You don't have a tradition of civil rights to look at uh, in France. So when the revolution happens there, it happens probably on behalf of the Orleanists, uh, just to overthrow the Bourbons and make themselves a different kind of monarchy. It's uh, it's uh just
0: a bad scene all around, Robin. So this is basically, uh, as we begin then to look at uh, which uh, time organization would have done this uh, and allowed the gunpowder plot to go up, obviously it is not someone who was uh, trying to get Well, well, I guess it could have been ill-informed time travelers who uh, indeed did want to see uh, a Catholic Britain return. But it seems much more likely from what you're describing is that indeed that that was the effect that they wanted, is that they wanted to, if not uh, exterminate, but severely slow and and limit uh, the growth of democracy in Europe and therefore uh, in America. Uh, So uh, which time organization uh, was responsible then for uh, this desire to uh, spread authoritarianism or rather to prevent uh, uh, authoritarianism from being uh, slowly undermined by civil rights and democratic ideals.
1: I mean, there's, you're spoiled for choice, really. Um, uh, it, it could be any of your your time Nazis or your time Soviets. It could be some other uh, factor. It could even be uh, time communist Chinese who are attempting to undermine pestiferous Western democracy before it gets up their nose. Um, who can say? Uh, lots of people don't like democracy, it
0: turns out. Far too many of them have time machines. <laughs> and so, uh, who benefits in this timeline? Uh, are there other powers that, um, first of all, does, does this imply also that the uh, sort of economic surge and industrialization that the UK, uh, led, uh, does this not uh, happen in this timeline? And then does some other power rise to uh, take uh, England's place as as a great power?
1: That's an interesting question because we have long thought, as good uh students of Whig history, that industrialization, capitalism, and democracy all rose, you know, together, that they were interrelated causally. And I think the events of the twentieth century have maybe indicated that there is not necessarily such a close linkage as we would like to believe. Um so I don't know that people don't build steam engines to get water out of Yorkshire coal mines under a more, um, uh, royally intensive, uh, regime. And certainly if you look at the time that the industrial revolution did happen, it happened under a pretty bad era for English civil liberties, which is to say the reign of King George the who was attempting to restore the authority of the crown to what it had been under, uh, King Charles. And so the question of does England still have fortunate demography, agricultural reform, and and handy coal mines, I think two out of three of those are still true. You could maybe argue that with the entire House of Lords blown to Flinders and new Lords taking over, that the sort of agricultural revolution in England, which was more or less directed from the top aristocratically by the Earl of Townshend and other people, um, maybe it doesn't happen. Although Townshend himself was sort of a he was, he was not too keen on people's civil rights either, so maybe, uh, it's not that important. He's just all about getting the most out of his peasants and, and doing the job. Well,
0: and the thing about aristocracy is that if you blow up a random number of them, other random number of them take over.
1: Yeah, they've all got cousins. That's the whole point of aristocracy. I think that you probably still have England rising as a military power in the same way that Prussia obviously rose as a military power and then the industrial power is perhaps coincidental i think that the ability to form joint stock companies and trade them freely is a big part of maybe taking it to the next level and which is why the dutch for example out uh, you know um uh, outkicked their coverage uh, so many many uh, times in the 17th century but is it essential to just being able to beat up france i don't know i mean one of the one of the great advantages britain had in the napoleonic wars was that they could borrow all the money they wanted because everyone knew that they were good for it. Maybe that's not true under a more dictatorial, uh, regime. And, but the trouble is that they're not facing a flourishing democracy somewhere unless you have some fantasy that Princess Elizabeth fled to America and led, um, uh, a democratic rising amongst the colonists. Because guess what? It's 1605. There aren't any colonists yet. There's just Jamestown, uh, coming in a little bit and it's, uh, not doing well. So, the um the possibility of allowing you know uh religious dissenters to go to another place and Worship freely doesn't seem like it would have been as likely in a post-gunpowder plot world that if the uh, Puritans had even survived the reign of uh, of repression, uh, if, the, if they were smart, the Puritans would be leading the reign of repression as the least Catholic people around. But that's not how Anglicanism or monarchies work. So the Massachusetts Bay Colony might not even have been founded. It might have been left to the French because it really is good for nothing except seal fishing. Um, but Virginia Colony would probably have been a much more, um, uh, uh, even more directly uh, aristocratic affair than it even was in our history.
0: And because the intellectual tradition of civil rights uh, is something that fuels the abolition uh, movement, so that uh, you could have had uh, slavery last even longer, perhaps even into the 21st century, right. without that intellectual line of argument to back up the uh, economic reasons why uh, Britain was an early abandoner of of that institution
1: right and and partially it's because a slave economy is not going to be as easily outcompeted by our postulated uh, state capitalist economy uh, as it was by the relatively free capitalist economy of of great britain uh, and and indeed of the yankee american north Um, so the you know the the benefits of holding slaves would not be outweighed by the vast costs of holding slaves to the same extent that uh, that we saw in our history.
0: Uh, now, as far as uh, rectifying interfered with time streams, this one is, is a pretty simple matter of you just heading back there and finding the right uh, sentry and going, hey, you might want to look into this bomb in the basement.
1: Right, there's that.
0: What happened in the final timeline is that Lord
1: Monteagle was the brother-in-law of one of the conspirators. And the conspirator was like, well, I know he's a lord, but he's a Catholic and he's my brother-in-law. And if he dies, I've got to earn a living. <laughs> so he wrote Lord Monteagle a letter to say, I foresee a parlous doom if you go to parliament. Uh, so maybe don't go to parliament. And Lord Monteagle apparently was not an idiot, which good for him. And uh he turns the letter over to Robert Cecil, the head of the secret police and Robert Cecil's then sits on it and does nothing for two weeks, which is an interesting sidelight. Uh, but eventually does um, according to King James's recollection on King James's order, send someone down to search the basement and finds in fact, young guy Fox literally holding a, a, a slow match over all that gunpowder. And uh, I like to think that Cecil was just waiting until he could have absolute proof so that he would have a really good reason to purge not just the plotters, but also uh, Henry Garnet, the Jesuit sort of head of the Catholic resistance in England. Uh, Garnet, by the way, did not believe in blowing up parliaments. He was uh, very sort of proto-Gandian. He believed that you would simply um, accept with uh, divine uh, grace what was being done to you and be a martyr and make that an example and people would feel bad. Um, and instead, he got hung because he was... Uh, he knew of the plot and didn't say anything. He, his story was, it was told to him under the seal of the confessional. And uh, Cecil's story is, you're being hung.
0: So, <laughs> Cecil won. Right. Well, uh, that's a very final note on which to end <laughs> an episode. Uh, but uh, uh, we'll be back with uh, yet another exciting episode, a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Ask the Askfagelm, Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking
1: access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash can robin.
0: Ensure that this podcast does not explode by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Phil Bailey, Ruth Tillman, Steve Sigety, Tristan Knight, and Andrew Laliber. Bertie. yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new eminently on brand design Gaming Hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.